HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at comté-usa.com. That's c-o-m-t-e-usa.com. This week on Meet and Three, we dive into the science behind munchies, the history of coca the therapeutic powers of psychedelics, and mushroom-infused recipes. One of the biggest questions we get asked a lot is, does heat degrade psilocybin? The coca leaf was used as a sacred plant. So as a plant that could communicate human beings with gods or mother nature. What you can start to appreciate here is that cannabis is activating and hijacking the system throughout the body. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd. I'm your host today. My name's Jessica, and I'm happy, delighted, so honored to be here uh, this evening with a Heritage Radio Network Hall of Fame inductee, Joan Gusso. Joan is referred to as a matriarch of the Eat Locally, Think Globally food movement. She's an author, a professor, a food policy expert, and a very savvy gardener. I have the extreme luck of living very close to Joan. I've been in her garden and it is awe-inspiring to see what she grows and how she grows. I want to also uh, point out that she's inspired and influenced folks like Barbara Kingsolver, Dan Barber, and Michael Pollan. And Michael Pollan uh, once said of Joan, once in a while, I think I had an original thought. Then I look and read around and realize <laughs> that Joan basically said it first. So I would love right now to introduce the Heritage Radio Network listeners to Miss Joan Gusso. Joan, it is so wonderful to have you here with me today. It's great to be here, Jessica. It's nice to talk to you in this formal way. <laughs> yes, yes, it's true. Uh, <laughs> we um, we are neighbors, and I have had uh, the pleasure of getting to know you over the years, working alongside you, being your friend. And I, I also want to point out to people, one of the reasons I'm inviting you onto Cutting the Curd is that you are a real avid lover of cheese, and um, you are also someone who cares deeply about food and farming and where our food is coming from. And one of the conversations we've had recently is, um, is about this idea that we need to get people connected back to nature. That uh, I think what you've said is that what we need is a more direct contact between people and the earth. And we need to worry about how much we're doing to the earth and that food is one of the ways that we can do that. 
Yes, absolutely. In fact, it may be the best way to get the average person to begin to pay attention again to what surrounds them. I'm a, I'm a serious believer that um, the majority of people in the United States haven't for years paid much attention to where their food comes from. And I just had a wonderful experience the other day. I, I'm still teaching and I teach a class remotely at Teachers College Columbia University and we just did a session on aid, trade and development. And we have we have discussion sessions with half half the class each time, and so we had a discussion session on that t- topic. And one of the readings in it was a, was a story about the fact that the pines that protect the monarch reserve in Mexico, there's the monarchs settle on pines up in the mountains of Mexico, and there's a particular place that's a reserve. Actually, it's been reserved because it's so important. And the, the, those pines were being cut down and people were planting avocados because of the huge increase in the avocado market in the United States. And of the students in the afternoon session or the morning session, I guess, that we had discussion session, five out of the 20 mentioned that as the single piece that made the most uh, impact on them because they suddenly realized that their own food habits, because they all ate a lot of avocados. Some of them ate an avocado every day, and they realized suddenly that their food choices were having an effect on the whole world, not just not just our farmers, but around the world. So there is no question that if you get people informed about where their food is actually coming from, number one, it can it can change their eating habits, but it can also change their awareness of all the connections between us and that we aren't we aren't these separate creatures set into the world. To, to destroy it, we were meant to fit into the world as it, as it, uh, as it, as it lives. This wonderful, marvelous, amazing living globe that we're on, that we're rapidly tearing apart. So one of the things I find fascinating, I guess, being um, on the inside of uh, the food industry and food activism, is that we're still having this conversation that that it's as you pointed out for some of your students it's still a revelation when they have the aha moment whether it's about an avocado or about factory farming that even all these decades later you've you've been working in this field and talking about this uh, i mean since like the late 70s right yeah almost 50 years so this growing interest uh and the attention to where our food comes from seems almost finite, like, or I mean, I'm sorry, the opposite of that, infinite, that that there's never a point where we say enough interest has grown. Mm. It, it just seems- Or we like, say, I get it, I get it, right? Yeah. And we yeah. say, we got it, and now we're going to do something about it, and we're going to change consumer patterns, or we're going to think about our food systems in a regional way, or what have you. Um and you, you do have the uh, opportunity and the insight to be working with people who are in graduate school and who are studying this now. Over the years, have you seen um, any any changes, or is it really a new, uh, you know, wide-eyed aha moment every year? Well, I'd I'd like to be optimistic. <laughs> And say, I've seen a change. I, 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 I can't say. I mean, I've watched eons of students, decades of students, come and go. And there was a time in the seventies when there was a lot of awakening, and uh, when there, when I had a student in my class who'd been to Nicaragua in the middle of the Nicaraguan War, and she was up in arms about everything, and she awakened a lot of the other students, uh, but just about global issues. But the truth is that I'm sorry to have to say that very often the response of the students to the readings that we give them, which are about really about the food system in the world, sort of all the factors that affect the American food system, it's it's almost all new information to them, or they're 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 surprised by a great deal of it. Even though many of these people are people who've been studying nutrition 
which in theory at least is about food. And it was my, I suppose, I mean, I'm told that it was partly my contribution that started pushing the idea that food and nutrition were somehow related because when I first came into the field, deeply disturbed by what was going on in the food supply, I found that the food supply wasn't of particular interest to nutritionists. They were interested in nutrients. They were interested in what happened, as I used to say, they have what happened after the swallow. You know, not what happened before the swallow or right. before you even got a chance to, to swallow the food because it wasn't even in the store. That was not... The, my students in the 70s thought I was crazy to be teaching them anything about agriculture. They really did. So this idea of studying nutrition, I love what you said about after the swallow versus the study of nutrition before the food is even pulled from the earth. Um, and that, that to me, the reason I got so excited about having you on Cutting the Curd is because, you know, we talk about cheese, we talk about grass, and we talk about like great grass makes great milk and great milk makes great cheese. Mm -hmm. And I do think there is a bit of a mind shift, especially when we look at some food at the end, you know, the end of the production of food at, at it's enriched, things are added. And in cheese, sometimes, you know, what we look at when we look at a process of cheese making, you know, we look at some of the ways that benefits of milk can be taken away, whether through heat, ultra pasteurization, et cetera. So I love that idea of, of looking at nutrition from the very place where food starts. Well, the truth of the matter is that I, I came to a point in my life where, you know, I, 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 I guess you'd say I grew up in the nutrition field. That is what I was trained in was to pay attention to, you know, two from column A and two from column B, but also to pay a lot of attention to nutrients. And, and the fact of the matter is that, that the food industry is wildly and is what well, I would say wildly, but they're very enthusiastic about nutrition education as long as it's nutrition education. But when we talk about food, they will literally say, and I have had this happen, that they don't think we should be teaching about food, that that's a personal choice. Well, I mean, I've reached a point in my life where I stopped thinking about nutrients at all. I, I never think about nutrients. I think that if I eat whole foods and I eat a lot of stuff from my garden and I don't eat the quota of fruits and vegetables everyone thinks you should eat in the middle of winter because that's not what nature provides them. So I have a lot of things in storage. I have a lot of potatoes and sweet potatoes and squash and carrots, and I have kale in the yard, which is still active. There, as long as you eat food and a, and a variety of foods and pay, pay a little attention to whether you're getting enough protein, although in American case of Americans, that's almost never a problem. The problem is usually you're, you're getting more than you need. You really don't need to think a lot about, about all, the, all those nutrients. You just need to eat foods, a mix of foods, because that's how humans evolved on. And, and, that, and that, I just want to harken back to one of the things that Michael Pollan credits you with is the eat food being yes. the basic principle, the founding principle of, of, you know, healthy eating, nutrition, nutrition, nutritional intake, eat food. Yeah. Well, that, as you know, that's, I had been, I had been asked to give a speech at Dartmouth by one of my former students about nutrition and health. And I really don't, care much about the way about the way nutrition and health is taught because you know we're talking about nutrients again and we're talking about you know what you should what nutrients you should get to stay healthy and all this kind of thing and I said I can't really do that she said well you know if you're coming to coming to Dartmouth you're going to give another talk you have to give at least one talk about that I said okay and so I gave this talk in which I basically said we did not know enough to compose a whole diet if we just based it on nutrients. We really didn't know enough. 
and uh, and I gave I gave the fight the battles over carbohydrate and protein in the last few decades as an example of what we really didn't know and how we couldn't even say what was the ideal. Those are macronutrients. They're really easy to deal with. And we, we didn't know which were the most important and, and, and I mean, which we should get the most of or which we should get the least of, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, when it came to micronutrients, it, you take something like iron, whose absorption is wildly affected by a lot of other things. And it's, it's very hard to know. I mean, we really, we really know, we know some things, but we just don't know enough to, to, to say that we're really informed. And, uh, and I, and I, after I gave the talk, I was asked to give it someplace else. And I went out to Davis and I gave it at Davis in California. And Michael was out there doing something else. And I don't know, we were on the same program and I said something about giving this talk. And he said, well, will you send me a copy? And I said, sure. And when I, when I sent it to him, he wrote me and he said, this is really terrific. What, where are you publishing it? I said, oh, come on, there's no place in my field. You could publish a paper like that. I mean, there's no place to publish that paper. So do what you want with it. So he did. He wrote that book. <laughs> the Omnivore's Dilemma. And yes. uh, I mean, he and he acknowledges. I mean, he acknowledges yes. that he got the idea from me. He's very he's a very generous. I love Michael. He's a wonderful person. But it's amazing to know that something, again, that you had been saying in the academic field or, you know, to the academic or scientific audiences really found more of its home in the mainstream, in the popular culture. And, yeah. and we're still, now it's a marketing tool in a way, right? I mean, <laughs> like that's, wait, I mean, Whole Foods is the name of a chain. Right. <laughs> so. right. That's true. That's true. But I'm, I'm afraid if you go look in the literature, you're still not going to find, you're still not going to find in my field, much research going on, looking at you know what's going on in a marketplace and what the effects of the of marketing uh, there there's you know it's it's it upsets me a lot i mean i just don't see people i don't see my colleagues researching things or paying attention to things and asking the right questions about things that seem to me to be really important to the average consumer it's all about how we go about teaching what it is we teach, but it's not, we don't, we don't really do as much examining of what it is we're actually teaching. Um, one of the things that's been very exciting to me is this thing that has, that this Spanish professor has come up with about called ultra processing and ultra processing is he has, he categorizes foods as three kinds. There's foods, there's processed foods, and there's ultra processed foods. And foods are just foods, you know, what you pick out of the ground or carve out of an animal. All, all processed foods are things like bread and canned vegetables and things that where something has been done to the food, but it hasn't been totally, it's just basic, simple food. It's all made from food ingredients. And ultra-processed foods are usually, usually have no food ingredients. They're basically made either from several processed foods put together or they're or they're from you know refined soy and refi they're they're from isolated parts of soy and wheat and corn and so forth all put together to be irresistible and he has done there are some studies have been now been done looking at the effects of diets to start with i should say the american diet now consists about 60% of ultra processed foods which Still, is that's amazing that it to me just shocking mm -hmm. and it turns out that when you have that high a percentage of processed if you compare someone eating a diet made up of that a 60% processed foods or a very high percent of processed foods as opposed to a similar very similar diet without ultra processed foods the ultra-processed food diet, the person eats faster, they eat more calories in a shorter time, they're less healthy, and so forth. I mean, it's very clear that he has finally discovered the one thing that we can look at and say, we know this is harmful. Because the truth is that over the years, many, many very expensive studies have been done 
trying different nutrients, adding different nutrients to diets. <clears throat> you know, the, there's a vital trial. I was part of something called the vital trial. I actually participated in one of these in which they were looking at um, uh, vitamin D and uh, um, can't, I can't even now remember uh, one of the one of the unsaturated fatty acids, and they and we either you were either you were in the experimental group or you got one of them in one placebo or the other one in a placebo or you got neither, and um, and uh, and it was a long trial. It was very this kind of thing is very expensive to keep a lot of people involved in taking these things over a long period of time is very expensive and very time consuming, and it had almost no effect. I won't say none. They're still analyzing the pieces. But it had almost no effect as every trial that's ever been done with vitamin C, with vitamins E and D, with you 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 pick the mix and you do a study and see if it affects health and it doesn't. But this ultra processed food thing really made a difference. A huge difference in a very short time. So, so I'm gonna, that's oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well I wanted to um take this as an opportunity to take our required break. Um, this is fascinating and I, and I look forward to continuing after we just um, stop for a message from our sponsor. So we'll be right back. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conte within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conte. Conte takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conte is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conte is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conte is unique. Learn more about Conte, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. Okay, and now we're back. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> back with Joan Gussow to a really fascinating conversation uh, about a lot of things concerning the food we eat and, and how we determine uh, nutrition. And also, um, I want to make sure we also talk about how we produce our food as well. Um, can we talk for a minute about um, regenerative grazing, regenerative farming? Uh, biodynamic farming. These are some of the terms that we in the cheese industry are starting to see more and more pop up when it comes to the way uh, dairy farmers are um, taking care of their herds and producing milk. Can you talk a little bit about these methods and why they're essential to some of the larger points that you've been making? Yeah, it's really, this is, when you asked if, if there had been change, this is one of the things that I, that I look at very positively, except for the fact that, of course, the, the big corporations are trying to co-opt it and talk about sustainable agriculture in their terms. But the real meaning of what's been going on is there's a, there is a whole group of farmers, an increasing number of farmers, are, tr are, trying, to, are trying to use their land in a way that sequesters carbon, in other words, reduces the carbon dioxide in the air by sequestering carbon in the soil 
and to raise and to, in raising animals particularly i was just looking at a video the other day i'm part of something I just have to do a little diversion here. You know, there's there's organic and there's a standard for organic. And I don't think many people realize the degree to which once organic became popular and people bought it, the big guys moved in right. and started saying. But at first they attacked us and then they said it didn't mean anything. And then once it started getting popular, they said, oh, let's take that over. And so in effect, we now have... Fruits raised indoors hydroponically, and it's called organic, even though organic is based on improving the soil. And you have no soil in hydroponics, so it's complete for it's a complete fraud in my view. And they've also certified confined animal feeding operations, those CAFOs, in which those animals are herded together in huge numbers and never graze on pasture at all. And where organic says animals have to be raised in keeping with their with their uh, natures and they have to have, I think they're supposed to be on, on pasture uh, 130 days a year, but they've certified these places where there isn't enough pasture around to feed a 10th of the cattle litter there. So organic has been corrupted. So there are a lot of people trying to wave their hands. And one of the groups is called the Real, Real Organic Project. And I'm on the board of advisors of that. And they're saying, we, we, okay, we accept organic, but we also, this, we have this added thing that we do not accept these distortions of organic because organic is about, organic is about repairing and feeding the soil. And so what you asked about is, is really these places, and there are many farmers doing it now, of dairy farmers who raise their cattle on pasture, they improve the pastures. In fact, I was re I was watching a video the other day of a farmer saying that he was he was not only raising cattle and making making yogurt and yogurt was his, their specialty, but that they had also been raising other vegetable other crops and he and plowing the soil and he realized that he was ruining the soil and he ended up giving up all those other things and and putting all that land back in pasture. And he was talking about how the soil was improving every year because the cattle are grazing this pasture. They're, they're leaving their droppings, which fertilize the pasture. And the pasture, because we now know there's this whole underground community of organisms that's really responsible for soil fertility. It improves the organisms in the soil, the soil microbiome, as it's called, and 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 so it's re it's really wonderful to see what people people who are really taking care of the land, and this is catching on. This idea there's a there's a slight there's a quiet below the surface battle going on between organic farmers who still plow the soil because they're growing annual crops, you know, and they, and they have to, they feel they have to plow the soil and, and, the, and the sustainable people who are against any plowing, any breaking up of the soil at all. But that's, that's like, that's like a debate between angels in my view. <laughs> um, it's, 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 they're both doing, if, if the farmer is genuinely organic, he's working as hard as he can toward getting to minimum till anyway. So the whole question of tillage in the soil and breaking up the soil is the one where there's still an edge between between the good guys. But the rest of it is about planting cover crops, which absorb nitrogen, again, absorb, absorb carbon from those from the air, not adding not adding nitrogen, but letting the nitrogen come from the, the cover crops and basically developing a quote, no input agriculture, which means you don't have to add, you don't have to bring in fertilizer, you don't have to bring in pesticides, you don't have to bring in herbicides. You, the farm, in effect, takes care of itself. There's a lot of that going on. And it's, it's very moving to see these people who are, who are struggling in, in the face of this onslaught of technology and and now the now the the vegetable the people who are talking about vegetarian meat which is this sort of fake meat movement 
saying that they're going to save the world this way. I, they have, still have to prove to me that all that technology in the laboratory is not taking, uh, it, it is improving our relationship to the earth. That's, that's the thing. I don't know how, I don't know how to put it. The thing we have to learn is how to fit back in. We have had this, what we've had, well, we've had this 200 year intoxication. Is it 200 or is it a hundred? Maybe it's 200 year intoxication of energy. We've thrown all this energy into the food supply. We now get one calorie of food for 10 calories of fossil energy, which is insane in, a, in processed food, let's say. Uh, but we, we, can't, we can't go on that way. And everybody is recognizing that. So, that. so there's all these, but the people who sell the inputs, the big ag companies that are selling the fertilizer and selling the pesticides and selling the herbicides, they do not want no input agriculture. And so they're fighting it in every possible way. I just was reading something the other day that I discovered in my files that's by some group that has a, a very, it has one of those series of initials that make you think, oh, it's one of those good groups. And it turns out to be a biotech promoting group that is celebrating how many countries they have introduced biotech into. And biotech is, it may have certain marginal possibilities taken out of the hands of capitalism. That is, if nobody's going to profit from it and you can figure out that it is really solving a problem as it solved this problem of the papaya ring spot, which is a real triumph of biotech. But the way in which biotech is usually used is a way of gaining control on the part of the companies because you have to buy the seeds from them because the seeds are specially developed to be resistant to their herbicide. So you have to buy the herbicide from them and so on. And it, it doesn't work over the long-term plants learn to resist these herbicides. And so you have to use stronger herbicides and breed them into the seeds until you just run out of options and the farmer doesn't have any choice. So it's, 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 it's so important that we understand that the urgent thing is to get ourselves fitted back into nature and stop destroying the planet that is our only home. And we're, we're, we're really cutting it close, as they say, because not only is it, it's not just global warming, it's that we're destroying the insects, we're destroying the, we're destroying the animals, we're destroying the birds, we're destroying the butterflies. I mean, there, the, there was an article a couple of years ago, in the Guardian or someplace, called Insect Armageddon. Well, that got sort of called back and people said, well, it's not quite that bad. But the loss of insects is stunning. There's a there's a there's a really really beautiful book called The Moth Snowstorm which is about the fact that when you used to go driving at night the headlights would pick up all these insects flying in front of the headlights and they would uh, ultimately you'd have to get out and clean off your headlights yes. because there were so many insects I do remember those days That's gone because I hate to say that I, I haven't even noticed. No, it, it's gone. It's the insects are gone and it doesn't happen. And that's like, you know, your children don't know about that. They never will know about that. That's, that's a very serious thing to say, you know? So we have come to a point that's very, in this conversation, that that's pretty, pretty dire, pretty painted a bleak picture. And yet at the same time, we've also pointed out some really great things that are happening. The That there are farmers and food producers who are taking, you know, taking up the charge to connect back to the earth um, and in effect connecting the consumers back to the earth through eating the food they create or that they grow. Mm -hmm. Looking ahead to the next administration, to the Biden administration. And I know there has been a lot of, a lot of changes in the way we 
um, uh, the way our country has approached agriculture over the last few years. Um, what do you what are you looking for in this next administration? What what would you like to see? Well, it's interesting that you s- said that about how we had come to a grim point because what has really made me optimistic is that the COVID crisis has precipitated precipitated at the beginning particularly and it's continuing a, a crisis in the food system. It turned out that our food system is just incredibly fragile because it's so huge and anything that big one break in the food chain and everything goes bad and we all know that the president ordered the companies that were processing animals, ordered them to keep in business, even though the workers were in danger, because he said it was an urgent. It was urgent. We 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 have a very very damaged food system and and a very dangerously over oversimplified food system that we have to we have to. But I think there's a great deal a great deal of interest and concern about this on the part of a great many people. And we also have a food system that has systematically deprived black people of their part in, in agriculture. I mean, we we used to have we the number of black farmers, the amount of land in the hand of black people has been systematically degraded by a Department of Agriculture, which was hideously, hideously biased. And they actually won a huge, huge settlement for that. But it's still, but a lot of it is still going on. So my answer is, there's been some argument on a listserv I'm part of about who should be the new Secretary of Agriculture. There's a lot. There, I mean, I don't think that the Secretary of Agriculture was a position that one out of ten Americans paid any attention to at all. And I think that it is now becoming an issue, and that's. That's terrific because people now understand that that is a huge, I mean, most people don't understand that the biggest part of the Department of Agriculture's budget goes to food stamps. I mean, agriculture is a, the department is a two-sided department. One is about production and the other was about consumption. And the consumption side is actually bigger. So we have, we have to have someone who's, who cares about both of those things. And I think that I think that Biden is, I, I think that the word is getting to Biden. I don't think he's immune to the fact of what's going on and the concern out here, out there by people in agriculture, that agriculture finally be paid attention to seriously. I mean, all that Trump did was when the farmers were badly hurt by his battle with China, his trade battle with China devastated the farmers because the the Chinese stopped buying our soybeans. So to make up for that, Trump sent all this make-up money to the Midwest, all of which went to the biggest, most industrial farmers. I mean, it was like he was just bought them off. He just, knowing knowing he'd done them damage, he just bought them off. So that's going to stop. But but it it's going to require. I mean, there's so much wrong with the way the agricultural system works that it's it's hard to even summarize it. But I think I do think Biden is concerned, and I I have real hope because I think the right people are talking to him. What can we do as consumers uh, to connect back to nature? I mean, I know there's buy local, know your farmer, uh, you know. Um, what what are some things that we can do as consumers uh, to connect back to nature to um, to think about you know what we're doing to the earth uh, through our food? I know you know you grow a massive amount of food that that you eat. Um, do you do you grow all the vegetables that you eat during the year? I did for a lot of years. I'm now having trouble because the water table is rising <laughs> and I can't grow some of the things I used to grow. So there were there was probably a 10 or 15 year period when I don't think I ever bought a vegetable, not a potato, not an onion, none of that. I grew all of that. I still grow potatoes, I still grow onions. But I don't I haven't I didn't grow any brassicas. I did grow any broccoli or Brussels sprouts last year. And uh uh, 
but but on the whole, yeah, I would say I still do not buy many vegetables. Uh, when the carrots run out, about when the carrots that I dug, what a month ago, run out around March. No, probably around June. <laughs> I have them in my storage drawer. Um, I may have to buy a few carrots, but that's about it. I don't usually buy. I haven't bought potatoes in years. I sometimes I don't. I can't cure my onions. The answer to your question, however, is is the simplest answer is get as close as you can to the source of your food. I mean, go to farmers markets, buy from farmers who live in your neighborhood if there are any. In other words, try to find out how your food is being grown and pay attention to that. I think that's probably the most important thing you can do. And then and then pay attention to the world around you and 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 just buy less. I mean, every single thing you buy is torn from somewhere in the earth, one way or another. Either someone has grown cotton, which is one of the most pesticide-ridden crops in the world, or now that they have cotton-resistant to, to pesticides, it they spray huge amounts of, of herbicides around the cotton in order to keep in order to keep the weeds down. Um, don't if if you if you <laughs> I I have written in one of my books that I have a I have a toaster, one of those toasters with drop sides that the sides drop down that my parents owned, and uh, when it broke, um, I don't know, twenty years ago when my husband was still alive, he said, "Oh, we could get a new one," and I said. No, we can't get a new one. Number one, I don't want to give it up. Number two, somebody somewhere is going to dig that chrome, and that's a hideous job, and I don't want to make anyone dig that chrome for me. But if you if you can just learn to think about not throwing things away, I read someplace that the average piece of clothing is worn for seven months. And then it's gotten rid of. I can't believe that. I have clothes I've had for 20 years. Uh, we just have to stop using up the earth. Not just food, but everything. That's what we have to do. We have to understand that it all comes from somewhere. There's a wonderful quote I used to use from Andrade Roy, but I can't quote well enough even to paraphrase it, except in effect, she said, you know, when I'm in a big city and I see all those tall buildings and I see all those streets and all those cars, and I think that had to come from the soil and the forest and the water somewhere, and I don't understand how, and I need to. Well, you need to. You know, that's what I'm saying. It, it's not just about food at all, and it's not just about CO2 and global warming. It's about how it's about how we're ravaging the earth as a species. And we have to learn not to do it or we're not going to make it. So when we have access to food produced all over the world at our fingertips, I mean, I can, I can go just a few miles from where I live and I can get food made, you know, grown and baked or stewed or whatever process uh from any country <laughs> practically right, exactly and i can and i can get that i can get my marcona almonds from spain i can buy my parmigiano reggiano from from italy i can um and i and i don't want to go without those things i can't imagine life without parmigiano reggiano <laughs> no i no. i agree with you there mm -hmm. <laughs> but do understand that there are differences there's a difference between importing a wheel of parmigiano reggiano which does not have to be kept ice cold the whole time which is which is durable which is used in small amounts and importing fruits and vegetables which have to be kept in a cold chain which in itself is very expensive that's the th that's the important thing. or to or to import meat to to have the to have the tropical forest cut down so they can graze for meat to send to us is obscene I mean, it's obscene that we would be importing. Well, I mean, uh, trade is nuts. I mean, I remember, I remember, I remember a, a, a economist that I deeply admire 
once said that we we both import and export sugar cookies between the U.S. and Europe. We just send the things back and forth. <laughs> we do the same thing with wheat. We export a huge amount of wheat and we import a huge amount of wheat. Well, now that's mindless. That's insane. We, it, uh, even though wheat, you know, also doesn't have to be kept cold. So it's less, needs spices. Spices, we don't have to do without spices. They're high value. They don't take up a lot of space. They don't destroy soil. You know, they're, they're, they're dry. Uh, there, that's no reason why we shouldn't trade spices. That was one of the first things that got traded, right, in the human history, the spice trade. Um, but we just need to be thoughtful about it. I think that's a really important th- you know, thing for us to think about in our industry where distribution, logistics, uh, often are the greatest obstacle for a small producer um, to be able to get their product from one place to another. And sometimes when their when their um, cheese or uh, yogurt or you know often the perishables which need to be refrigerated, which need to travel at a certain temperature, um, sometimes yeah, not, not knowing much. Not knowing that much about your field, I would say goat cheese is one of the things that shouldn't be shipped around, right? Because most goat cheese is soft cheese and has to be preserved. And uh, as far as I know, maybe I'm wrong. Am I wrong on this? I mean, I mean, chevre, the little soft Uh goat cheeses. I wouldn't imagine that the terroir was incredibly important for that, or is it? It is. Okay. (laughs) I'll come over and do a little tasting of fresh goat cheese from Vermont, Wisconsin, and California. And and you'll be surprised. And Indiana too. But um but what I but what I notice a lot is that um and this goes back to, you know, just being aware and being cognizant, but we come up against our own industry sometimes that in order for a small producer to survive, they need to find more customers. And and that means, you know, trying to find ways to reach a larger, you know, customer base. And sometimes that means entering into distribution systems that end up backtracking. Like you could have your your cheese is in one location, the distributor is in another, the warehouse location is in, you know, one place and your cheese ends up traveling, sometimes going back from where it came from. Yep. Before it reaches the customer. And so I, I think the points you're making are, are really interesting. Also, the fact that I didn't mean to when I said Parmigiano Reggiano, I didn't intentionally use that as an example. But really, that cheese and, and many H cheeses, I mean, those started as ways to preserve a perishable product. And we just seem to have created systems to defeat science, right? To defeat nature. And, and, and so you know, there is a difference between, you're right, between like sending a, a wheel of a, of a cheese over here, a large format aged cheese, and then, um, and also looking at how we treat fresh, you know, fluid milk and, um, you know, perishable items that get flown all over the world. And, and sometimes we can just find them very closer to us where it does less damage to the earth. Yep. I, um, I do want to say, um, or I want to ask you before before we wrap up, because there's been so many big, big thoughts in this conversation, and and you've you've made so many great references to books and to people that I think all listeners will want to maybe go back and take some notes and do some of their own you know further uh, education. I'm going to ask you kind of a simpler question then. Uh, what cheese is in your refrigerator right now? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's Parmigian, Parmigiano, which I confess, this is a terrible confession, but I buy it grated at the health food store. <laughs> Be- because, But I've, I've begun to change. Because there was a while when every time I got Parmesan, it was so tough, I couldn't grate it. And I was so unsuccessful at grating it personally, but now I found I know how to do it. So I'm not going to get the grated Parmesan as much. And there's a, a cheddar uh, from uh, a, a raw milk cheddar. I don't remember what the, 
what the origin is. But I laughed because somebody sent me a box from Swiss family or something, you know, one of those Christmas boxes. It's full, it's full of those little, little fingers of cheese and little fingers of sausage and little fingers of God knows what cheese is in those little fingers. Uh, so I don't want to take credit for that. That's in my refrigerator because I don't throw anything away, but and I don't know that it's even cheese. Right? And it's I cheese don't know. Food. I don't know. You're referring to them as fingers. I don't know what they well, I mean, a little wrapped yes, thing yes. that looks like a finger. You know, it looks like an f- index finger, and, a little wrapped container of cheese. And then if you if you could have any cheese in your refrigerator right now that isn't there already, what would you what would you oh, like? Oh, no joke. The one you brought over the other day, that, oh. incre- that incredible blue cheese, the world's best cheese, right? Rogue River Blue. Yes, yes. That was that was a pretty that was a pretty amazing experience to see you taste that cheese and <laughs> I didn't know it was the world's best cheese. I just decided it was on the spot, right? That's perfect. That is perfect. Well, Joan, I want to thank you so much for coming on and speaking with me again, you know, as a Heritage Radio Network Hall of Fame inductee. It's just always great to just let more and more people know just about you know, what you do, what you know, what's in your head. And, and even if it's things that we have heard before, or we think we're already aware of, there's always more to learn. And um, I just really appreciate you talking with us today. Well, it was really fun, Jessica. You're, you asked great questions and it was fun to talk. Well, I look forward to uh, the next, um, the next glass of red wine with you. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.